My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... The thing is, I want to learn. And as it turns out, I work with people who know a lot about classical music. Every week on this show, one of my coworkers will give me a homework assignment, a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Dr. Michael Rimson. He is a composer, author, educator, and administrator. He's um, the executive and artistic director of the American Festival for the Arts, which provides music education programs for young people. He's also a Moore School alum. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, you that you were rocking that pink shirt, by the way. Thanks. It's pretty awesome. Hey. So what are we going to be talking about today? Well, uh, you know, we talked about doing a couple different pieces, but the one we settled in on is a, a piece that has a lot of history in Houston itself and is more and more being considered one of the big landmark works of the late 20th century, and that's John Adams' opera Nixon in China. Yeah, I read that it premiered in Houston uh, in 87? In 1987, and actually it premiered at the Wortham Center, and the Wortham itself was only five months old when uh, when the opera premiered. It had just opened that previous, I think it was in May, uh, that, it had, that it had opened. And really? so Nixon and China was actually one of the first large works to be premiered there. So why did you choose this piece personally? Well, uh, the piece for me has a lot of sort of personal resonance uh, as, an, as a composer and as specifically as an opera composer, to hear it and its very contemporary treatment of opera as a form and also, you know, that it incorporates a contemporary subject. Mm -hmm. And to me, it seems such an important vanguard and direction for opera in the late 20th century. And there had been a few before this that are considered very important, kind of like Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach and some other works in that vein. But this was the one that for me personally really said, wow, this is really doable. You can take this language, you can take these kind of subject matters, and you can create a a piece that is super Mm -hmm. compelling. I have to admit that I have um, kind of an aversion to most opera (laughs) and and musicals because, I don't know, there's something about people singing a story that just really gets to me. But I listened to some of this, and I got to say, I was intrigued it was n- not only did I enjoy the music, but the I don't know if there is a particular style of opera singing without having the language to really talk about it. There's the crazy vibrato opera, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, then there's whatever that. this is, which mm-hmm. is really lovely. And well, it's written in a, in what you know, sort of in the music biz, we would call a very declamatory style. It doesn't use a huge amount of, uh, you know, sort of opera style singing, what we've come to expect, you know, sort of from the big, you know, giant operas, the Wagner and the Verdi and things like that. Um, And it's written so that the language, you know, part of it's, of course, it's in English, which helps you as an English speaker to connect in more to it, rather than being in a foreign language, which is probably the first reason why a lot of people are turned off to opera, because it's 
it's like, hey, this isn't a language I don't even know. And there's all <laughs> these people sort of wailing around on stage. I don't know what I'm supposed to be listening for. Right. And so this, because it's, um, you know, because it's written in a very straightforward style and that the text is is clean. You know, they went to a, a brilliant poet named Alice Goodman who wrote this this text very, very cleanly. And then the text is repeated in the minimalist style, it's repeated a lot. And so it's very easy to grasp it, to get it, and to hear what's, you know, to really understand what's happening mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. any given moment. And uh, I think it makes it a lot more accessible. But, you know, let me say you're not alone in the world of people mm -hmm. who are kind of freaked out by, you know, by people standing on stage singing. You know, it's like something great is happening to me. And instead of celebrating, I'm just going to burst into song. I mean, right. that's just not, I mean, it's not real. And it's a convention that does take some getting used to. But, some people, I guess, never get used to it, but when you do, it's just, it's a whole nother world, and it's it's so wonderful to watch the different nuances mm -hmm. of how people kind of get into the get into the world of opera. Yeah, I've definitely heard some opera that I thought was just, I mean, gorgeous. Like I want to say it was Madame Butterfly mm -hmm. that I heard that I went, oh wow, that is just breathtaking, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but this, I, I've heard, I've had a lot of people come on to the classical classroom and talk about, they, they always mention John Adams. Mm -hmm. I've, I've yet to have somebody come on and actually, you know, specifically I was, talk I was about first person foolish enough to John pick him. <laughs> Adams. So um, can you tell me a little bit about him as uh, a composer? About him personally? Well, he's, um, he was born in 1947, if I'm not mistaken. And so he's just a little bit behind the other composers who get lumped into the term minimalism. Uh, he's just a little bit younger than Philip Glass or uh, Steve Reich, who I think both were born in the late 30s. Mm -hmm. um, he went to Harvard, and then he went out to California, and so he's very influenced by a big variety of music. And so, you know, he's written a variety of orchestral pieces, and this was his first opera. This was the first time he'd ever been approached about doing an opera, was to write Nixon in China. And the man... It's worth mentioning the the man who was kind of behind the whole thing was a director named Peter Sellers, mm -hmm. and oh yeah, and he sort of was known for doing a lot of avant-garde theater and had come up in that world and had gotten very interested in doing opera. And he went to Adams and said, "Let's write an opera called Nixon in China." And Adams said, "No, <laughs> I, I don't want to because." You know, Sellers was known for being kind of a bad boy in the theater and the opera world. And remember, Nixon's resignation is only, you know, 10 years earlier than this. And so Nixon was still a very polarizing figure in American mm -hmm. life, even at that point. People had very strong opinions about him. And certainly any reevaluation that we've done of Nixon over the years was still long off. And so when Adams said no, he thought this is going to—he did it because he thought it was going to be a satire. He thought mm -hmm. it would be— an unfair treatment of it. But uh, Sellers was able to convince Adams to approach the story in a much more interesting way. And that's how they brought Alice Goodman, the librettist, in as well. And they turned the story into a story about mythology, about contemporary mythology mm -hmm. and the myths of who we are and how we create our own myths in a lot of ways yeah. and how then also the media plays an important role in kind of the mythologizing of public figures and private ones for that matter. Wow. And so each of the keys of the six characters who are made up, you know, who are central to the story, each one is kind of their own mythology as, and, and has created their own mythology on some levels as we meet each of them over the course of the story. Wow. Well, let's hear some of this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, the You know, it's a two-hour opera or more than two-hour opera, and of course we don't have time for that in this context. And so I picked three excerpts that I thought 
would really introduce people to the story. Um, and the first one comes in Act One, and the opera opens with um, sort of a very dreamy kind of uh, tableau on stage, and you see all the Chinese people sort of standing there, and they sing uh, in this very sort of philosophical style about the world and about what's happening. And and basically what it is is they're members of the Chinese military and they're waiting on the tarmac for Nixon's plane to arrive. Now, the other thing you got to remember is that anybody of a certain generation remembers watching this on the news, that this was, this was big, big news when Nixon went to China. Politically, it was a huge, huge deal. China had been, you know, was a communist country. Nixon was known as a very um, rabid anti-communist. And the, the, this visit was the beginning of of normalizing any kind of relations between the U.S. and China, and even the U.S. and the USSR, because Russia got sort of a little jealous that China and Nixon were getting together, and so they invited Nixon too, and that's what led to the first round of SALT treaties, which were the hmm. uh, strategic arms uh, talks hmm. that they had. So. So politically, this was everywhere on the news, and the images were—I mean, it was kind of like when the the moon landing. You, a lot of people really remember these images very strongly. So, they were super careful to recreate these images on mm-hmm. stage. I mean, it's almost like going back and seeing it on television again when you first see it. And in fact, the scene that we see—that I mean, the first scene we're going to listen to when the plane arrives. And the and they they literally had this giant sort of plane kind of roll in on stage, and the door opens and there's Nixon doing the peace sign thing, you mm-hmm. know, and Pat coming out, and it was so funny because all the characters on stage applaud and actually everybody in the audience applauded too because <laughs> they remembered sort of that moment and it's and and you really get swept up. It's like oh well, it's the president and so you start clapping, you know, yeah. do what you think you're supposed to do, and so he comes down and he shakes hands with. Um, Joe Enlai, and they, he starts to meet this sort of long, long, long procession of Chinese officials that are lined up on the tarmac to meet him. And as he sings, the music sort of explodes into this fanfare. And Nixon is shaking all the hands of the people, but he then turns and he's got this, just this explosion inside of him of the excitement of what's happening. And he sings this aria called News Has a Kind of Mystery. And it's all about the mythology of, of this moment. He's going, oh my God, this is, this is history. This is, it's happening at this exact moment. And we get his, we get to sort of the bombastic Americanism compared to the Chinese culture that is happening at the beginning. And we get his unbelievable energy and excitement uh, over what is actually happening. And the music just captures it perfectly. I read recently that uh, during Mao's rain uh western music had been completely banned Mm -hmm. in china and wasn't um they didn't even start allowing classical music western classical music to be played there until 1978 the cultural revolution was very i mean madame mao and the cultural revolution was very very powerful yeah that so it's it's particularly um poignant maybe I don't know to, to set this this very sort of contemporary Western opera there in a, in a place where that would where the not music have, would been allowed. have been heard exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly so yeah let's hear some yeah news 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 
so you can hear the repeated text. Yeah. You know, and how that, so that you really get it. And this very declamatory style. There's, it's, it's very just straightforward singing. Mm -hmm. Some people complain about that in hmm. the opera that there's too much of that. But for the style of the music, I think it goes perfectly. Why do minimalists do that? Why do they do? Why do they use repetition? What What is the? Well, the point of minimalism is to get a lot out of a little, okay. uh, out of out of a small sort of cell of music, and it does repeat. But there is an evolution that happens very very slowly in that repetition. It's based a lot on sort of Hindi concepts of time and evolution of thinking and. So something will be repeating, but and then maybe 10 or 15 seconds later, you realize, wait, this has changed ever so subtly. Mm -hmm. And that slowness of that evolution is really what minimalism is about, okay. is about taking you on, on a, a journey, but appreciating all the small moments mm. that, you, that you go on. With. Okay, that helps, thanks. And so you hear Cho and Lai in the background saying, I want to introduce you to, because there's just this procession of people going by. So we're hearing sort of Nixon's inner dialogue and then exactly. also what's going on outside. Exactly. And okay. it's that inner dialogue that is captured so beautifully in the music, the, yeah. the excitement, the yeah. tension, if you will. History, as we made history. Such a peculiar reference right there. The the text references the Flemish Renaissance painter Bruegel. Really? And it's he's talking about the flat the, the sort of the pale colors and the flatness of the countryside. And he says, Bruegel, Pat says. And it's like as if Pat leaned over to him and said, oh, it reminds me of this Flemish painter. And it's such a weird throwaway line, but it's so interesting at the same time. Yeah. It sets us up for Pat mm -hmm. in a very small way <laughs> when we meet her at the beginning of Act Two. We live in an unsettled time. We live in an unsettled time lushness of the harmonies and his use of the harmonies is very interesting when he goes from one chord to another especially in this aria more than in some of the others it almost always has one note in common between one chord and the other mm -hmm. but the but f like for a theory teacher it would be maddening because there's no real relationship between the two chords other than the fact that they have this note in common mm -hmm. but it's it allows him to move in very very fluid ways so the music keeps moving along very very nicely but he can use these denser more romantic sounding harmonies. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the orchestration, which is huge in this piece. I mean, Adams took the standard orchestra and added saxophones and synthesizers and really? pianos and a much larger percussion section. And it's so that he can get lots of different kinds of sounds out of the orchestra and lots, of, I mean, the color in here is remarkable. sings, you know, news, news, has a kind of mystery. And essentially what that is, is it, it's a very traditional operatic structure for an aria where you have an idea, 
and then a contrasting section, and then you return to that idea. And in in the Baroque days, that would have been called a da capo aria, but it, it's not a specifically one here. But what it, it is a very sort of traditional structure for an aria, and I think that's really important in understanding what's happening because. Again, Sellers encouraged Adams to use a lot of the traditional operatic structures, and so what it allowed him to do was to be very adventurous with text setting and you know how this how the words are set to the music and mm-hmm. the colors in the orchestra and the rhythms. But if he's doing something very traditional in terms of the overall structure of the aria, it's something everybody can kind of hold on to. Everybody goes, "Oh, I know where I am. You know, I know where I am in this piece. I heard that before." Mm-hmm. And it breeds a certain kind of familiarity that, as a listener, is very comforting. Hmm. So using this traditional structure with very Mm non-traditional sounds and sights Mm -hmm. and, yeah, okay. It's the hallmark of of what many would call neoclassicism. And that was, it was a movement in music at the early part of the 20th century where composers were experimenting with harmony and with rhythm and, uh, you know, they were really pushing the envelope in a variety of ways. And so by using a little bit of the traditional with a little bit of the modern, that mixture, yeah. theoretically, you know, that composers felt that it would make it more accessible for audiences and allow them to push the envelope in certain areas. Because if you push yeah. every envelope, you know, All you have musical chaos and nobody knows what to do anymore. Right. So, yeah. But having a little bit of the, the known with the unknown makes, makes the pill a little bit easier to swallow. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And so the neoclassicists and the neoromantics were very much, um, very much, you know, wedded to this notion. So with, uh, I always kind of tend to understand things in literary terms. Um, so say you've got poetry with a rhyme scheme mm-hmm. and you know whatever that scheme may versus be. free and verse let's it, say right so yeah. so we're talking shakespeare versus charles bukowski mm-hmm. sort of thing like <laughs> and, and so Mahler was the I mean, charles bukowski allen ginsburg and and then neoclassicism sort of pulled it back in and said no wait let's form go back can and... be a useful tool yeah. yes exactly okay it's it's one of many useful tools that are at a composer's disposal and and any composer who was at the vanguard of something new that happened in in music was pushing the envelope somewhere. Yeah, you know, and it was in the late Romantic period where form was one of the things that was. I mean, a lot of things were getting pushed in the late in that late Romantic and early twentieth yeah. century period. Composers were trying lots and lots of different things, but. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's we've oversimplified the metaphor, but yeah, that's yeah. essentially correct. <laughs> like the next thing you know, ladies are going to be wearing pants and things Good are just getting God crazy. God forbid. Yeah. I know, showing their ankles. And, <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay, let's get back to the music. Yeah. I know America is good at heart. An old, cold warrior piloting towards an unknown shore through shoals. The rats begin to chew the sheets. The rats, the rats begin to... And here, a total change of character. And, and this is his... You know, you can hear the lines, the rats begin to chew the sheets, and it's this suspicion, it's the suspicious side of Nixon who has to be on guard. I mean, this yeah. is a, it, it's not just all fun and games going over and making history and meeting, you know, the Chinese people and doing all of this. 
it's there's this there's something also an undercurrent that he has to be very careful about. Sure, because he's you know he's going into a communist country, yeah. which you know as you said he was particularly averse to, to communism. Well, and the fate of the fate of how people are going to live together on this planet hangs mm-hmm. in the balance on some levels. Not to get too prosaic about it. it well, yeah, but I mean that's. That's but the relationship between the East and the West was at a crucial point. Yeah. How was Nixon received in China? Were they happy for him to be there? Oh, I think so. I mean, I don't know exactly. I mean, but I think it it, it represented a major step forward mm-hmm. in uh, in Chinese and American relations. Okay. And I mean, this was the groundwork. I mean, even still one would argue today that Chinese and American relations aren't ideal. Sure. And But this laid the groundwork for there to even be a dialogue. Yeah. And I think for all of them, they all knew the, the, the gravity of what was happening. Whew. Sorry to leave you with a cliffhanger, but a two hour opera is a lot of ground to cover. I was having a great time talking to Michael, and so we decided to make this episode a two-parter. We'll find out next week what Ms. Nixon and Madame Mao were up to while Nixon was glad-handing and being suspicious of rats and sheets. As always, if you have questions or suggestions, email me at dclay at classical917.org. And for information about this show or to listen to past episodes, go to classical917.org backslash classroom. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>